So let's first begin by reading 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 5 to 11. And brothers and sisters, I remind you that this is the Holy Word of God. This is the Lord speaking to you. He is one whom we must approach. We must come before with reverence and with awe. Because he is not a tame God. But he is good and gracious. So please listen to his word with zeal. 2 Samuel chapter 6, verses 5 to 11. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nakan, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. He said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now turning to our sermon passage this morning, 1 Samuel 6, verse 1 through chapter 7, verse 2. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. And they said, If you send away the ark of, God, uh, uh, the, ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty. But by all means, return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, what is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? They answered, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, did they not send the people away and they departed? Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows on which there has never come a yoke and yoke the cows to the ark, to the cart rather, but take their calves home away from them and take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart and put in a box at its side the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering. Then send it off and let it go its way and watch. If it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done this, us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left. And the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. 
Now the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it in which were the golden figures and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. One for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages, the great stone beside which they set down the ark of the Lord is a witness this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Thus ends the reading of God's most holy word. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you, O Lord, for this portion of your word. It is precious to us. It teaches us about who you are. It teaches us about your nature. It teaches us about your dealings with man. We pray, O Lord, that we would be willing hearers of your word. That we would listen attentively, O Lord, both to the reading as we have heard it, but also, Lord, to the preaching of your word. Please bless the ones who hear. Please guide the one who preaches, we pray. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would be glorified as your word is now preached and heard. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as you remember, acknowledging that it has been a little while since we were there, but in chapter 4 of the Ark, uh, chapter 4, the Ark of the Covenant fell into the Philistines' hands. And it did so, it fell into their hands because the military leaders, the elders of Israel decided, because they couldn't find victory in battle against the Philistines any other way, they decided to take the Ark from its uh, place at Shiloh, and to take it into battle. They, they looked at it as some sort of, uh, some sort of magical artifact, this, this powerful talisman that would surely bring victory to them against their enemies, the Philistines. Instead, their belief that the Ark of God was some sort of magical object resulted in their utter defeat and the capture of the Ark by the hands of the Philistines. Now, you might think 
that after the ark's loss, the Israelites would mount an expedition into the Philistine-held territory to get it back. And you could be forgiven for being mistaken on that count. Because Israel did no such thing. This was the single most precious article in Israel's possession. This was the physical representation of the spiritual presence of Yahweh in their midst. And it had been taken from them. And yet it seems as though there's no record of them attempting to do anything to regain it. Chapter 5 gives no indication of any effort on Israel's part to get the Ark of the Covenant back. The only activity on Israel's behalf in chapter 5 is the activity of the God of Israel, who puts all of Philistia in fear of him by humiliating their false gods. And so you remember that well from a few weeks ago, the way that this statue of their god Dagon was uh, caused to be knocked over because it was in the presence of the Ark of Yahweh. They became so frightened of Yahweh that by the end of chapter 5, after they had moved the ark from the city of Ashdod to the city of Gath and then to the city of Ekron, the, the Philistine people called for the ark to be sent back to Israel. They wanted it out of their lands. They just weren't quite sure how to make it happen. They didn't want to touch the thing. They didn't want to be near the ark of the covenant. But they wanted it gone. And so chapter 6 and the first two verses of chapter 7 chronicle the Philistines' efforts to get the ark away from them and out of their hands and back into the lands of Israel. But the truth of the matter is that it wasn't the Philistines who were taking action here. The Philistines were reacting to Yahweh's activity among them. The Israelites, for their part, were dueless. They took no action whatever to recover the Ark of Yahweh. The Philistines were nearly immobilized with fear. They knew that the Ark had to go, but they didn't know how to make that happen, and they really didn't want to make it happen themselves. But it is Yahweh himself who sees to it that the sign of his presence here on earth, the physical manifestation of a spiritual reality, the Ark of the Covenant, was safely transported out of Philistine lands, back into the lands of his covenant people. He did it himself, for himself. As we work our way through the sermon today, I would call upon you to consider this thought. God is not dependent upon and cannot be constrained by humans. But he freely made a covenant with his people and he will not break that covenant. I'll say it again. God is not dependent upon and cannot be constrained by humans. But he freely made a covenant with his people and he will not break his covenant. Well, the sermon has three points. The first is a reasonable plan. The second is mission accomplished. And the third is God's glory Revealed. So again, a reasonable plan. That's the first section of the sermon. Mission accomplished is the second. And God's glory revealed is the third. So let's look at the first point of the sermon, a reasonable plan. The people of Ekron and all of the Philistines were at a loss. They knew, as we've already said, that the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of Yahweh had to go, but they didn't know how to get it out of their city. 
Now, verse 1 tells us that the Ark of Yahweh was in Philistia for a total of seven months. It's not clear how much time, uh, how much of that time it was in Ekron, but for the people of that city, its presence there was far longer than they wanted. Every day must have felt like a year for them. And verse 2 says that the Philistines called for their priests and their diviners. This was more than simply one city's problem. All of the Philistines called for help. All of the Philistines, all of the cities were being ravaged by these plagues. And their sages were summoned. And they asked the priests and the diviners, what shall we do with the Ark of Yahweh? Tell us with what we shall send it to its place. Now, the question that the people pose to the priests and the diviners appears to be one about the mode of conveyance that should be used to transport the ark back to Israel. They, they have a sense that they should not touch this thing. They just don't know what to do with it, how to get it to move. Tell us with what we shall send it, they beg of the sages. But the sages tell them in verse 3, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And after the people ask about the type of guilt offering they should make, the priests and the diviners reply with what seems to be a very strange answer to our ears. In the second half of verse 4, they tell the people, five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines, for the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. Now, if you happen to have Dale Ralph Davis's commentary on uh, the book of First and Second Samuel, then you will know that he has a, a very fun time with what the Philistines are proposing here. And, and, and questions in, in the pages of his commentary, why, what would this tumor or these tumors look like? It appears that the Philistines were simply acting out of their own religion, out of their own belief system. <clears throat> For them, you made an image of the thing that scared you, of the thing that caused you trouble. And, and that image was some form of sympathetic magic, it seems to be, on their part. They were hoping that that might somehow appease uh, Yahweh. They go on to say in verse 5 that they must make images of the tumors and the mice that ravaged the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will lighten his hand from off you and your gods and your land. Now we noticed in the last sermon that the word translated glory in some places is translated heavy in others. The hand of Yahweh has been very heavy upon the Philistines. And the sages hope that by giving glory, by giving weight to Yahweh, that he might lighten his hand from them. Now up to this point, the mice that have been ravaging the land of the Philistines hadn't been mentioned. But given the fact that these mice are classified as part of the plague that has descended upon the Philistines, it most likely means that they were causing a famine in Philistia. And if the harvest was just being reaped in Israel, then it stands to reason that it might have only been as the Philistines were going out to harvest their own wheat, their own crops, that they discovered this great plague of mice who were devastating the crops. The hope was that this guilt offering, along with the return of the Ark of the Covenant, would placate Yahweh so that the plagues of tumors and the mice would be lifted from their lands. 
And it appears that there was at least some amount of resistance to the plan because the priests and the diviners challenged the Philistines in verse 6 not to harden their hearts the way that the Egyptians and Pharaoh did when God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. And that word for harden, again, it's the same word that's translated glory and weight in other places. These sages seem to be saying, don't, don't think of yourselves more highly than you are. Don't, don't, don't resist this plan. Don't stand in, in, uh, in objection to this plan. The sages still, however, want to know if what they are planning to do will be acceptable to God. They need some sort of test to ensure that Yahweh was the cause of the plagues. They don't want to go to all of this trouble, only to return and see that the plagues are still there. And the test that they come up, is, uh, come up with is to use two heifers who have recently given birth, two heifers that have never been subjected to the yoke and so would not know what they're doing. And they pull a, a cart from Ekron to Beth Shemesh. Their calves, which have not yet been weaned, would be taken from them back to Ekron. And if the mothers willingly pull the cart with the Ark and the Philistines' guilt offerings to Beth Shemesh, and they do so without direction, no one leading them, these untrained, uh, somewhat wild heifers, if they do so, then the people will know that it was indeed Yahweh who had sent the plan, the, the plagues. It would have been completely unnatural for these new mothers to abandon their calves. So if they do... The Philistines can trust that Yahweh is in control and that he has accepted their offerings and that he will lift the plagues from their people. This takes us to the second section of the sermon, Mission Accomplished. Verses 1 to 9 is all talk, but no action. Verse 10 is where the narrator starts to describe the action that takes place. The men to whom the sages gave the instructions did as they were told. They took the heifers and they yoked them to a cart and they took their calves home and put them in pens. They loaded the cart with the ark of Yahweh and the golden mice and the golden images of their tumors. And they sent the two cows with the cart in tow on their way. And verse 12 says, And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth Shemesh, along one highway, lowing as they went. They turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Shemesh. The lowing of these heifers, the lowing of these cows, meant that they were aware that their calves were still back in Ekron. They hadn't somehow been struck dumb with that knowledge or ignorant of that knowledge. And yet, despite their missing their calves, they proceeded on to Beth Shemesh. Now, it was the time of the wheat harvest, as we've mentioned, and verse 13 tells us that the people of Beth Shemesh were out in the fields in the valley reaping when they saw the ark of Yahweh. This ark that had been gone, as we will learn, for seven months, out of their hands, out of their lands, for seven months. And they rejoiced when they saw it. And verse 14 says that the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and start, stopped by a huge stone. And immediately they tore apart the cart. They used the wood from the cart to, uh, to build a fire. And they offered the cows as a burnt offering to Yahweh. Some Levites were there in Beth Shemesh. They took the ark of Yahweh and the box filled with the golden tumors and the mice. And they set these articles upon the top of the great stone while the men of Beth Shemesh offered the sacrifices to God. And once they had seen all of this, verse 16 says that the five lords of the Philistines returned to Ekron. 
Verses 17 and 18 of our passage give an inventory of the guilt offering that the Philistines offered to the Lord. A golden tumor, tumor each for the cities of Ashdod, Gaza, Eshkelon, Gath, and Ekron, and, and the number of the golden mice equaling all of the cities of Philistia, large and small. And the great stone that was in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh stood as a, stood as a testament to all that took place on that day. To the lords of the Philistines, it is now completely clear. Yahweh had caused the terrible plagues. He had caused the suffering. And they could be assured that because the ark of of Yahweh was no longer in their hands, that they would no longer be plagued. The test, it seems, was a success. The God of Israel had revealed his power. He had revealed his holiness to this pagan people, and it was merciful for him to do so. And he was now leaving them alone. What they ought to do, after having this revelation of the God of Israel, Yahweh, after having received this revelation, what they ought to have done was gone back to their cities and purged their cities of all of the idols and the false gods to get rid of them. They know who the true God is. But as Dale Davis says in his commentary, it is so easy for us sinners, Philistine or otherwise, to respond only to the pain and not to the truth of a situation. Our immediate fears are alleviated, but our heads are no wiser, our hearts no softer. Perhaps the Egyptians have no corner on denseness. As it was with the Philistines, so often it is the case with us. We, too, can come under God's fatherly displeasure, even as Christians. We know that as true believers in Christ, we will not suffer the ultimate penalty for our sin, for our rebellion. You can rest assured that you will not have to fear the Lord on the day of judgment if you are in Christ Jesus, if you truly believe in him. But that does not mean that when you sin here on earth in your life that you won't at times come under his fatherly displeasure. It does not mean that you won't be disciplined by your heavenly father. In fact, the Bible is very clear that that discipline of a father is a sign of, of love. The fact that God loves us is borne out by him disciplining us for our sins. But so often it's the case that when we come under God's fatherly displeasure, when we experience his heavy hand, his heavy but loving hand, that we want to do whatever we can just to get rid of the pain, of the, of the suffering, of, of whatever inconvenience is put upon us without really getting to the heart of the matter, the truth of the matter, the truth that is behind the discipline, the truth, that he loves us, that he cares for us. Now, the Philistines were not the declared people of God. They weren't the ones, the nation upon whom God had set his love and made a covenant with. But God most certainly had made provision for those outside of Israel to come into Israel. And there's no doubt that if the Philistines had acted in faith, They certainly had a sense of awe for the Lord. They were certainly in fear of him, but it did not lead them to saving faith. 
The fact is, it's so easy in the middle of a painful or a frightening situation to make all sorts of promises to God about how we will reform our ways if we can just have relief from that pain. Only to forget all about those promises when the relief does come. As we'll see later on in 1 Samuel, the Philistines don't repent and change their ways. There seems to be a little bit of hope that maybe they will. They become, however, one of Israel's main enemies. But that makes God's character stand out even more. He didn't have to reveal himself at all to the Philistines. God knew what they would do. He knew how they would reject them after he had revealed himself to them in such a powerful, such a mighty way. He is teaching not only his people, but the Philistines as well, as one commentator puts it, a fundamental lesson on his own freedom and holiness by means of this excursion of the Ark of the Covenant into Philistine lands. He's definitely teaching his people a lesson that he cannot be constrained, that his holiness cannot be impugned. But he also taught the Philistines that lesson as well. Well, it takes us to the third section of the sermon, God's glory revealed. (coughs) All is good. All is happy. There's great rejoicing in the land of Israel over the return of the lost ark. And what's more, the people didn't have to lift a finger in order to have it returned. The only lifting was the Levites lifting their ark off of the cattle cart and placing it on the large stone that the cart had been parked next to. But still, all is not right between Yahweh and his people. And verse 19 makes this jarringly clear. We read there, And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of Yahweh. He struck 70 men. And the people mourned because Yahweh had struck the people with a great blow. Now, I know that some of your English translations uh, in front of you read, He struck 70 men. Others of your translations say that he struck 50,000 men, or he struck 50,000 and 70 men. Whatever the translation is that you are reading, either way, there's a great disparity, of course, in those numbers, but either way, it seems unreasonable and harsh and capricious even to our modern sensibilities that God would do such a thing. Now, to address the different numbers recorded in different manuscripts, if your Bible reads 70 men, it may have a footnote like the ESV does, which says that most manuscripts say that God struck 50,070 men. And so because of that, because most manuscripts have that reading, some modern English translations say 50,070 men. However, there are some manuscripts, a lesser number, that say God struck 70 men. We have to take into consideration the size of this village, Beth Shemesh. It was a very small village. And even if you you took all of the people in the village and all of the people in the rural area around the village, it could not possibly have had over 50,000 people. And so the smaller number is most likely correct, even though the more difficult reading would be the 50,070 number. But either way, it doesn't change the theology here. It doesn't materially change what is being taught to us in this passage. You still may ask, why did God kill any men at all? And that question, if you're asking it, it gets at the heart of the theology that this passage is communicating. Well, the short and somewhat poetical answer is that even though the Lord had returned to Israel, Israel had not returned to the Lord. 
That's short, that's pithy, that might not necessarily be all that helpful for you. And we're going to see this fact, Lord willing, when we are in uh, chapter 7, verse 3 and following next week. Not all of Israel. Israel had not returned to the Lord. There in verse 3 of chapter 7, Samuel says, If you are returning to Yahweh with all of your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. They were worshiping idols, the Israelites. And Samuel, we'll get to this next week. I don't want to steal too much thunder from the sermon next week. But Samuel comes back on the scene after having been absent for several chapters now. And he's on fire. The ark has returned and there is a prophet in the land. And Samuel is he's convicting the people about their false worship, their idolatry. The Israel... Israelite people in general were not following the Lord. They had turned to other gods. And the Beth Shemesh men in particular were directly disobeying the Lord. Their transgression, verse 19 says, was looking upon the ark of the Lord. And again, many of your English translations might read something differently. You may have in your English translation because they looked into the ark of the Lord or the ark of Yahweh. And and if you're... Bible reads that, then it certainly makes it seem justifiable. This means that if they looked into it, if they, they peered down into inside the ark, that they were looking upon the contents of the ark of Yahweh, that they had lifted the lid from off of it. The problem is that the Hebrew doesn't support that translation. And that's a, that's a difficult thing for us. The word combination means to gaze upon or to gaze at, not to look into. It may mean that they were looking upon it with inspecting eyes, that they were surveying the ark. But it doesn't mean that they had opened the lid. And so if anything, the translation, they looked at it, they looked upon it, it makes what God did seem even worse. But to understand what's going on here, we have to go back in our Bibles to Numbers chapter 4 where God gives instruction to Moses and Aaron. And he has this, this uh, subsection of the Levites, the Kohathites, who are, they are charged among the Levites with the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant. And one of the things that they have to do, when the Lord is giving this instruction upon, about the movement of the Ark of the Covenant, remember, the Ark of the Covenant was in a movable tabernacle. It was in a temporary sort of temple-type structure. And the tabernacle, of course, had been set up at Shiloh where Eli was. And the Kohathites, when the, when, the, when the tabernacle was being struck, when it was being taken down, they were to take some of the veils that surrounded the Ark of the Covenant, the, the veils that, that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the tabernacle, and they were to lay it across the Ark of Yahweh. They were to cover it so that it could not be looked upon. And even the Kohathites, who had been given the job of transporting the ark on its poles, are not to look upon the ark lest they die. They're given specific instruction in Numbers chapter 4 not to do this. And believe me when I say that all of Israel would have known this. So when the men of Beth Shemesh looked upon the ark of Yahweh, they would have known that they were not to do such a thing. The Levites who moved the ark, of the, uh, the, the ark off of the cart, they should have immediately covered it. But the men should not have presumed to inspect the ark. The ark was not their possession, and so they could not treat it as such. 
And what's going on here is that the people of Beth Shemesh, they're behaving in a similar way to the Philistines and all of the previous towns. And so the outcome is somewhat similar. And then, of course, the reaction after God smites these people, the reaction of the people of Beth Shemesh is very similar to the Philistines in each of the cities where the ark was stationed. They wanted the ark gone. They wanted it away from them. They wanted it out of their presence. And verse 20 says that the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before Yahweh, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? Sounds, if not identical, somewhat similar to some of the words that the Philistines said. And so they sent messengers to Kiriath Jerem, a larger town than Beth Shemesh. They uh, told them to come and to take the ark out of their city. And chapter 7, verse 1 says the men from Kiriath Jerem came. They took the ark of Yahweh, they brought it into the house of Abinadab, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark. And verse 2 says that it stayed there at Kiriath-Jerim for 20 years. It was finally back in the lands of Israel. But it was not back in the tabernacle. It's not until David has the ark brought back, as recorded in 2 Samuel 6, that the ark's journey almost comes to an end. Even in that account, we have a reminder in the case of Uzzah who reached out to steady uh, the ark of the complete holiness of God. And so because of that, there is a delay in getting uh, the ark back. But it certainly was not because of God's people's devotion to him that his glory as represented by the ark of Yahweh returned. It wasn't because they were so lovely or so lovable that God made his presence known again among his people. Then why did God return? God knew that his people would reject him. He knew that they had rejected him. He was fully aware of the fact that they were worshiping false gods. And that they seemed to care not about the absence of the ark from the lands of Israel. That they seem to to be indifferent to the fact that these pagan people had the ark in their possession. Why did the ark return? It was only because of the steadfast love that the Lord has for his people that he signaled the return of his presence among them by returning the ark to Israel. The Ark of Yahweh, the Ark of the Covenant, was not only a sign of God's presence and glory among His people, it was also a sign, a visible and tangible reminder to them of the covenant that He had made with them. It was a sign that no matter how far His people went from Him, that He would always be faithful to His people. Now we are not to take this for granted. We are not to treat God as some common thing or His covenant as some sort of ordinary, common thing, the way that God's Old Testament people did. We are to approach the Lord with reverence and awe. But the simple fact that we can approach Him at all is based upon the truth that He will never leave us, nor will He forsake us. Even though we may forsake Him by giving into temptation, by indulging in sin, God will never forsake us. Why is that? How can that be? 
can we say with certainty that even though we go to our grave, even though we breathe our last breath with unrepented for sin, how can we say that we can go to be with the Lord? It is because of the reality to which the Ark of the Covenant points. God has made a covenant with his people. And when his people can't or really won't lift a finger to restore our relationship with him, he takes action to restore the relationship with us. And your personal experience may bear this truth out. And yet the truth is not subject to your personal experience. But you perhaps have experienced that in your own life. A time of straying, a time of, of, of moving away from the Lord for a period. And then God's inextricable drawing of you back to himself. Against your own will. Just as God saw to it that the ark of his covenant returned to his covenant people, so he returns to us and returns us to him again and again. The consummate event to which the return of the lost ark points is God coming to his people in the person of Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us. As great as the return of the lost ark was to God's people back in 1 Samuel, even greater is the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, who never sinned, who shared with God his Father the most intimate of relationships, was forsaken by his Father on the cross because he took your sins and my sins upon himself, the sins of every single one of his people. He took them on himself. He bore them all on the cross. He suffered the fiery pains of his Father's wrath because he took our sins upon himself. And the Son of God did this. He was forsaken by his Father so that you and I would never be forsaken by him. So that we would never know the eternal estrangement and forsakenness from God. He did this for you and for me. And all that is required of you and me, all that is required of any human being, is that we repent of our sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if we are able to do so, If you and I, if we're able to repent and believe, it is because and only because God has first come to us and made us alive and able to do so. It is not that the Israelites came after God, came searching for him, came to rescue him from the hands of the Philistines. No, they did not. And neither did you. And neither did I. We did not seek him because we would not seek him. But the Bible is plain and clear that he sought you and he sought me out. And he made us able and willing both to love him and to worship him and to obey him. He gave us the graces of repentance and faith. And he has bestowed upon us every benefit of salvation. Not because we deserve it. Not because we are so lovable and so worth loving. Quite the opposite. But simply because of the promise that he made, be, made to us before the foundation of the world. That he would save to himself a people for himself. 
And if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sins, then your name is among that people. Your names are written on his hands. And he will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. He will never forget the promise that he has made to himself and to you. And that, brothers and sisters, is good news. That's the gospel. And that is what we need. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we pray that those times when we forsake you, those times when we stray, when we wander, as we are so prone to do, we pray that you would continue to do, that you would always do what you have always done, to seek us out, to draw us to yourself, to bring us to repentance, to grant us the faith that we need. We pray that you would increase our assurance of forgiveness, our assurance of salvation. We pray that you would cause us to want to be obedient to you out of gratitude for everything that you have done for us. And so we pray, O Lord, that your mighty works, your wonderful deeds, your steadfast love and the ways that you have expressed your love for your people, that they would continually be on our lips, that we would regularly bring them to our remembrance, that we would glory not in ourselves, but that we would glory in you, who are our rock and our redeemer. We pray this all in the precious name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.